I've put on the uh, on this slide a picture of an eye because what I want us to think about when we're thinking about Samson is to elevate our thinking because there are some things as we as we know the record well and Brother Mark mentioned in Sunday school it's certainly one of our favorite subjects he does do some fairly strange things uh, if we think about his role as a deliverer of God's people we might be challenged sometimes to think why is he doing these activities why is he taking women of the land why is he engaging in a, a wine feast why is he killing things why is he engaging in these kind of activities when he is supposed to be a man of faith and so we are going to have a look at brothers and sisters the chapter that brother mark mentioned hebrews 11 because it challenges us to elevate our thinking and in ecclesial life this elevation is critically important because sometimes we see individuals we have experience of circumstances and we only have the one dimensional view we just see from the outside at a, at a tangential. And what Samson encourages us all to do is to elevate our thinking to God's view. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And if we see something in the ecclesial house that needs attention, needs our help, needs our guidance, we should assume positive intent and then seek to understand. That really is the exhortation of, of Samson, because if we were living in the time of Samson, we might say that this judge is not particularly up to much with some of the activity that he's engaging with uh, when we know that he is a Nazarite. Now, we're going to have a look at this expression, Nazarite, because we're going to submit to you that potentially um, the translators have got it slightly wrong in terms of how they translate this word in the context of Samson. Because if that understanding is correct, some of the things that we see Samson doing are no longer problematic for us. And we can think that God is never inconsistent with himself. And there's no way that God would set up an individual to fail. He wants the best uh, for all of us. So what we're going to do uh, is we're going to split up into, into two talks. Um, the talk one is going to be pretty much about a very quick snapshot into the background of the judges. I know you're all very clever in the Midlands, um, so hopefully you'll learn something, something new this evening. But of all of our studies, it's so that we don't just learn new things, but we put them in, into practice. And we're going to have a little look at the background of judges and this great man of faith uh, that was Samson. Then we're going to have a look at chapter one and really drill down into what does it mean to be a Nazarite? as we have in Numbers chapter 6, and what does it mean to be separated to God as we have in Judges chapter 13? Because we're going to submit that they are different things. And then we're going to have a look at the lion threat, um, and then the victory, and then we're going to have a short break for talk two. Uh, I won't go through all of that. Um, we're going to cover that uh, hopefully after our short break together. So the chronology of, of the Judges. So we have Joshua finishing in, in chapter 24, you have the declaration of the people. And it seems to almost be a spiritual high point, doesn't it? After some of the chaos at, at Ai and, and conquering the land. But then it seems that Judges chapter 17 to 21 then come next in the chronological order. 
And we're going to have a quick look at that. And that helps us to explain a couple of things. Because in these rather curious chapters um, at the end of the book of Judges, it seems to be a, a strange place to have these type of uh, discussions around um, the, the Levites um, and this man Micah um, and so on. And then we have the, the relocation of the, the Danites. They, are, they relocate from where they were given the land of promise. They're going to relocate up to the northern part of Israel. And then we have this, this rather unfortunate incident with the Levite's concubine. But both of those two, pas those two passages are flanked by a very famous expression that we know well. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which is right in his own eyes. And brothers and sisters, how, and young people, how much does that apply to us today? Incredibly so, isn't it? That in actual fact, everything is right as long as you don't try to impose your right on somebody else. Everybody gets to determine what activity is appropriate in the current uh, moral climate that we find ourselves. And so, but then if that's the case, and we will look at that in a little bit more detail, and then we're going to come into Judges 1 through 16. And then so straight after Samson, we submit, we come straight into the ministry of Samuel. And we're going to have a little look at the comparisons at the end between Samson um, and Samuel, because there are some remarkable uh, similarities, both in their birth, um, their role, and their obligations. So Josephus places uh, chapter 17 to 21 uh, before the commencement um, of the book of Judges as a kind of a, a prologue at the end, if that makes any sense. Um, and the reason he does that is, is because there's a mention of Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. There's an incorrect translation in the AV. It should be uh, Moses rather than Manasseh. And there's the presence of Phineas, the son of Eliezer. There's quite a few other things that you could tap into, brothers and sisters, if you wanted to do that study. But it's, it's helpful for us to, to think about that when we think of what the type of Samson is and then what the type of Samuel is, because they're one leads into the other. I think that's quite interesting. Now you've got um, the Danites uh, moving north um, some 125 miles because they couldn't overcome uh, the Philistine threat. So if you like, they leave the land of promise that was given to them and travel north. But as we know from the chapter that, that we, we read together in the book of Judges, there are some Danites who have stayed behind and Samson's parents and Samson are one of them. And we'll be having a little look um, at that later on. So just think about this. There is a family where they've stayed and the majority of the tribe of Dan have, have left, if our chronology is correct. So they are not amongst their brethren of the same tribe anymore. Okay. Have a think about that. And then... <clears throat> Think about this. In Judges chapter 13 and verse 5, it says at the end of the verse, Samson will begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Okay, so there is a beginning, but not necessarily a completion during the life of Samson. And then you may know this passage very well from 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13. 
It says, so the Philistines were subdued and they came no more into the coasts of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Now, of course, that's not to say that the Philistines weren't still a thorn in the flesh. But in terms of the land and the covenant of promise, Samson started this salvation work and it was completed in the time of Samuel. And we're going to see, brothers and sisters, that there's a remarkable connectivity, isn't there, between Samson and John the Baptist and Samuel and the Lord Jesus Christ and how one prepared the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You know what's quite incredible about Samson is, is that he always seems to be alone. In all the other passages of Judges, you have the judges, you have their armies on occasion, you have other special individuals to play a supporting role. In this chapter, brothers and sisters, Samson is primarily on his own as he begins his missionary work. His father comes with him to the, to the feast, this marriage feast that we'll have a look at. It's a bit difficult perhaps to understand on first glance, but his mother stays. So this is about an individual's work to affect the salvation of God on his people at possibly one of the spiritual lowest points in their recent history. And the reason we, we, we say that is because at the beginning of chapter 13 and verse 1, we have the Philistines subduing Israel for 40 years, but there is no pattern as we have with the other judges. We normally have the sin. We start off with the, with the sin. Uh, then we have the sold into captivity or attacked or subjugation of some sort. Okay. And then we have the cry to God and then deliverance. In the book of Judges, which relates to Samson, there is no such cry to Yahweh. It's conspicuous by its absence. So they don't even feel now that they want to be saved. You know, brothers and sisters, let's just turn over and just pick out a verse uh, of chapter 15 and verse 11. There's 3,000 men here of Judah. Um, we're going to look at the context a little bit later on um, in our second talk. But what do they say to Samson? They say in verse 11 of chapter 15, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? And what is it that thou hast done unto them? And he said unto them, As they have done unto me, so have I done to them. You know, brothers and sisters, there's a real apathy in young people, isn't there, within this tribe of Judah. They've accepted lordship over them of the Philistines. There's no God in Israel. There's no heavenly father. There's, well, Philistines, they're clad in brass and they've got iron weapons. Not much I can do about it, but duck and cover. I'll have to abide by their rules and regulations and, and not speak out. And maybe it's going to get better at some point. Can you see, brothers and sisters, that they have started to accept that they are part of the world and there's nothing they can do about it. They don't recognize their savior. And so how true is that for the Lord Jesus Christ? That they too wanted salvation from Rome, but didn't realize that they needed salvation from themselves and sin. And so we, we come across a state in the history of Israel at the lowest point. They're no longer even crying for deliverance. There's an acceptance. And brothers and sisters, the exhortation for us is, is that it is going to be hard 
for the remnant in the last days. We can see God's manifestation of Christ in the earth is coming. And there may be some times when persecution is coming. Things that are happening that we wouldn't have even thought even 10, 15 years ago in this country. Brethren and sisters losing their jobs, vilified on social media platforms just because they're standing up for what God's truth is. And Samson is there to convince these men and women and young people that salvation is coming. But you've got to want it to be part of it. It's the old Laodicean problem, isn't it? That the lukewarm, they've just accepted the existence and they become consumed by, by wealth, uh, materialism, and a myopic focus on self. The exhortation is clear, is it, brothers and sisters? We've got to be keeping our eyes open uh, for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the, this is the circumstances we find ourselves in, um, in the book of Judges in chapter 13. Now, um, some of you may have uh, used Zonophon's Illustrated Bible Dictionary before. It's incredibly good. I find it an amazing resource. But this is their quote as it relates to Samson. So I'm not sure I can subscribe to this at all. It says, too often, animal passion rules him. He was without real self-control. And accordingly, he wrought no permanent deliverance uh, in Israel. What a dreadful indictment of this most remarkable man. Is that, is that our understanding, brothers and sisters? Well, of course, it's, it's not, is it? When we keep your fingers in, in Judges chapter 13, we're just going to quickly turn to Hebrews chapter 11 because it's important that when we're thinking about the life of Samson, we elevate our thinking to God's view. Because in chapter, in chapter 11 of Hebrews and verse 32, the writer says, What more shall I say? But the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and also Samuel. Those are incredible Bible characters in that list. Incredible. A man after God's own heart is in that list. Samuel's in the list. But when we read that list and then we look at the qualifiers for what these faithful uh, men went through, what do we have in verse 33? Who through faith subdued kingdoms, Samson, wrought righteousness, Samson, obtained promises. He did stop the mouths of lions, quite literally. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness was made strong, waxed valiant in the fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Can you see that so many of them relate to Samson? And so how can we have this view that, oh, he did something good at the very end of his life when he took out those Philistines? Was it really a life of faith? And of course, Hebrews 11 is explaining to us that it absolutely was a life of faith. Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. And that's so true, isn't it, of Samson? Because as we read the passage together, we're going to finish off in Hebrews at the end. But he didn't have many friends, did he? Even his brethren were rejecting him, saying, we don't want you to save us. We're quite happy. Thank you very much. So he truly was this man of faith standing alone. And you know, brothers and sisters, even though we can sometimes think, can't we, that, that we are standing alone, we know that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And what's quite remarkable about, about Samson is, is that if you try to find a picture of Samson uh, on Google, 
Um, the modern term is you can't find anybody who isn't shredded. Okay? The muscles are pumping out of him. And you think, is that really the biblical view? Can't be, can it? Because the Philistines are confused as to where does he get his strength from. If he was an incredibly muscular character, they wouldn't have asked a question. So it's the one on the left is the more accurate depiction. And so when we think about that, that he was a normal person like us, yet compelled to do incredible things, what an amazing man of faith he was. And an encouragement for us that even sometimes when we have to stand alone, we are never alone because Christ is with us in all our adversities. So let's have a look at separated to God because we know the story well. So we're not going to go through um, all of the, uh, the, the, the passages, but we can see here uh, in verse five and verse four, lots of things that are relating to the wife of Manoah, that spiritual uh, sister who is not even mentioned by name. But there are a lot more restrictions seemingly placed upon her in the record than on Samson himself. Because what does it say of Samson? And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of his hand, or rather further up the verse, for lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. Okay, so you've got the razor, and he shall be a Nazarite. Okay, now interestingly about the word Nazarite can be translated simply separated. And one of the famous passages that we often go to for this is Joseph was separated from his brethren. Of course, he wasn't a Nazarite, but he was separate. He was different. He was distinct. He was chosen for a specific purpose. So he's separate from his brethren. What's incredible is in Deuteronomy chapter 33, we have the tribe of Dan mentioned as he is a lion's whelp leaping from Bashan. Do you remember what Dan was in Genesis 49? Dan in Genesis 49 was a serpent, the most subtle of creatures. Judah was lion's whelp. We'll have a look at that um, again in a, in a few moments. So if that's true, brethren and sisters, and we think to ourselves, is it right that we've translated it Nazarite? If we translate it differently and we translate it like the word as applies to Joseph, we come up with some interesting things. I'm going to move uh, this bottom bar. So separation, absolutely in relation to um, Samson. He was to be separate. That's what Nazarite means. Samson's mother didn't mention that. Now, no strong drink, wine or vinegar. There is an explicit commandment to Samson's mother, nothing to Samson. So when we start reading in chapter 14 about the wine feast, that might help us to think, well, actually, if he did consume alcohol, he wasn't breaking his vow. No eating of grapes, moist or dry. That applied to Samson's mother, doesn't apply to Samson if the word is translated separate, even though we find him in a vineyard with the lion. No razor on his head cutting his hair. Well, that didn't apply to Samson's mother. We know that the hair is a glory uh, for the woman, and that glory represents both men and women in the ecclesial house, as we have in 1 Corinthians 11. 
So she's to keep her hair. But Samson, if you cut the hair, there's going to be a problem. And absolutely there was, as we'll have a look in our second talk. Touch the dead. Well, that's a question that we might ask about uh, Manoah's wife. She was not to consume anything unclean. But it doesn't explicitly say about touching the dead. But in relation to Samson, if it's not the Nazarite foe, he can touch the dead. And it's quite difficult to kill the many people uh, that he killed without touching one of them on the floor as you're fighting um, hundreds of enemy troops. So, of course, Samson touched the dead. There's an argument he even touched the dead lion as he got the honey out. And then self-declared. Well, the Nazarite vow was, generally speaking, self-declared. It was for a specific purpose and a specific time frame. That's how it's categorized in Numbers chapter 6. Here, they have no choice. Okay? Samson's mother, this is what you will do. Samson, you will do this from your birth. Okay? So there are some differences um, in relation to Samson um, and the Nazarite vow, if we think about it as defined in Numbers chapter 16. And, and if that's helpful, brothers and sisters and young people, because it does demonstrate to us that maybe some of the complexities of the salvation work that, that is affected by Samson are not quite as bad as we might have thought of if these extra obligations do not apply for him. Because on any of those, he should have cut his hair immediately. And yet he does not. And there is no condemnation in the record for the things that he does, save for the cutting of his hair. So if God does not condemn, brothers and sisters and young people, we're always very careful to condemn ourselves, aren't we? So that hopefully is, is helpful, because when we start then going through this, this chapter together, we come across Manoah, and of course, no doubt, he's very excited to have this son, but verse 8, he asks what every parent uh, likes to ask. Teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. How do we bring up our children? Is his question. I know he's going to do this great work of salvation. I have belief in that. But how do we bring him up? The God hearkened to the voice of Noah, but not in the way that he asked. So he asks again in verse 12. How shall we order the child and how shall we do it unto him? And how does the angel answer? Remember what was said to your wife. Don't break that covenant that has been established with your wife. And you might think, well, that's not a particularly helpful answer. But if we look with the eye of faith, it's one of the most compelling answers that us as parents, if we're blessed with children, we need to do. The first thing. Is, is that if we have a real passion for the truth, if we're baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to live it. And there's no fooling people who live with you. You've got to demonstrate to your children how much you love the Lord, how much you want to be in God's kingdom, and that dictates your activities, looking after those who need help. And so the message for Manoah is, be God-fearing people, obey my commandments. And he will follow in your footsteps. An amazing thing, isn't it, for us to think about that that's how we should bring up our children, not just through word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Bible study is critically important, but it has to be applied. It has to be a living faith, the, the olive oil uh, burning in the lampstand. So that's the message uh, that he gets. And this is the third time you see in verse 14 that it's reiterated the commandment 
to Manoah's wife. It starts in verse 4, it's repeated in verse 7, and again in verse 14. This child must not be corrupted by unclean things. And then we have um, this angel, and in verse 18, he said, Why askest thou after my name, seeing it is secret? It's interesting, the margin says wonderful, but there's a lot of secrets, brothers and sisters, throughout Samson, isn't there? And we know from Proverbs 25, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the honor of kings is to search it out. And that's what the record is compelling us to do here. If we start to do our study into this, it's an incredible act of salvation that we're going to witness together. And so they offer the burnt offering. Um, Manoah, verse 22, says we're going to surely die because we've seen God. And again, the faithful woman who's not named comes out with the still small voice. And for those sisters who have husbands, it's always good, isn't it, to, to channel husbands correctly. There's no open confrontation here. There's the still small voice. Well, it doesn't seem to make sense, Manoah, if all of these things have happened to us, if God's going to just kill us. And of course, she's right to what a spiritual woman she was guiding that house. Because one thing, brothers and sisters, we can see is that there's no Sunday school. There's no CYC. There's no learning at the, at the feet of Gamaliel in type here. It seems clear that the only spiritual guidance that Samson was going to get is from his parents. And how important it is then that those two work together in the house, fulfilling their different and specific roles, but always together, looking after the spiritual well-being of each other. And wives are particularly effective at, at the channeling husbands in a very effective way. Never happens to me, of course. <laughs> so then we come to verse 24. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. And of course, the word Samson means he's like the son. S-U-N. He's not the son, the son of righteousness, as we have in Malachi. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is going to be like it. He's going to be preparing the way. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And of course, if you have your marginal references there, it'll take you to Luke chapter 1, verse 80, and Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Both expressions used of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. That this young boy, Samson, as he's growing up, he's not just physically getting bigger, but he's growing in spiritual stature and might. He understands that he has to do the work of the Lord. He has to deliver the people out of the hand of the Philistines. But more importantly, the most important salvation is the spiritual salvation. And part of the, the, the curiosities that we see in these chapters is to convince Judah and the rest of Israel, that Yahweh is God. That's the message. And then it says, uh, and the spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Estel. So the camp of Dan was in that geographical location that, uh, that we had a look at, um, down not too far from Jerusalem, and if we have a look at what the camp of Dan means, we won't turn this up. But the camp of Dan in the Hebrew is Manhanadan. Okay, so that's a specific place. And if you've got your margin, it'll tell you that. 
And that, if we turn to chapter uh, 18, will tell you is right next to Kiryat Yerim or Kirajath Jerim, where the Ark of the Covenant would be placed, not two future heads. So can you see, we're almost given a snapshot that he's the mediator preparing the way between God and the people. And the spirit is going to move him at times. That would move is to compel. It's going to trouble. It often is in relation to the salvation of God's people. That same word was used in relation to Pharaoh, in relation to Nebuchadnezzar when he had his dreams. So he's going to be compelled to do things that perhaps not always he will understand. And then, of course, we have this this chapter break um, between chapter 13 and 14. But that chapter break is perhaps unhelpful because the text continues. God is moving him. And so immediately you see Samson went down to Timnath. So this man is blessed by God. There's not many people in scripture that have a specific blessing uh, mentioned upon them. We can obviously think of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac had a specific uh, mention of that word blessing. Joseph and his house, Obed-Edom, had a blessing. The man that we relate to the Ark of the Covenant, don't we? And then, of course, Matthew chapter 5, applying to all the saints throughout the ages the blessings uh, that we can receive. But we can clearly see that the Spirit of the Lord is with this man. doesn't come out very often in Scripture, but his actions are specifically guided by our Heavenly Father. And then he sees a woman in Timnath at the door to the Philistines. Now, we know, don't we, what the rules were um, in relation to having relations outside the truth. Uh, it's detailed for us um, back in Deuteronomy. It does actually talk about the nations that they cannot make connectivity with. It doesn't mention the Philistines, but we can obviously assume that it would equally apply uh, to Samson. So why is it then that this is taking place? Well... We submit, brothers and sisters, that the Spirit is compelling him to do so for a specific purpose. Because what, what's, the, what's the discourse here? Well, he says to his father and his mother in verse 2, I've seen a woman in Timnath, the daughter of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get me for her to wife. And then as we read verse 3, they're rightly concerned about that. Marriage outside the Lord is is. Is, is very ill-advised and makes life difficult. So much better if two walk in agreement because then you can support each other in times of difficulties and, and distresses. But what does he say? Verse 3 in the end. Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. And that word, she pleaseth me well, is means that she's right in my eyes. And it can have a connotation that it's for a specific purpose. You can see here, there's no love mentioned. Love was only mentioned actually in relation to Delilah, where a problem happened. Here, for she pleaseth me well. And of course, Deuteronomy 7 um, is the passage that says that you cannot uh, marry um, of the nations surrounding. But look at verse 4, brothers and sisters, if we were in any doubt whatsoever about this first rather curious uh, case, verse 4, but his father and his mother knew not 
that it was of the Lord. So even though, brothers and sisters, it's difficult potentially for us to understand and to reconcile with our way of thinking, this is of the Lord. And of course, this is the first challenge for us, isn't it? But when we think about it, we've had lots of strange things happening in Scripture. The, the sacrifice of Isaac. We have Hosea, who's asked to marry a harlot. We have Ezekiel, who has to go on side, one side and then on the other side for some 430 days. And so you do have, don't you, in Scripture, unusual events. You have the spies going into Jericho and they go into a harlot's house. So unusual things happen, brethren and sisters, <clears throat> to bring about God's plan of salvation. Verse, the end of verse 4, that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had uh, dominion over Israel. So there's another secret here. Manoah and his wife don't quite understand that this is the spirit working with Samson to take this woman. So we have the expression, verse 5, went down. We have that in verse 1. It generally normally signifies, doesn't it, that going down normally is, is a bad thing. Well, what happens um, as they go down uh, into Timnath? Well, they come to a vineyard, don't they? And we know, um, we know the story well. As he's in this vineyard, and again, if you could imagine that if he was a Nazarite, why is he in a vineyard? Is he grabbing some grapes and eating them? He's not supposed to do that under the Nazarite vow. If he's not under the Nazarite vow, there is no problem of that at all. But as he's coming, what happens? Well, there's a lion that roars against him. Now, we know, don't we, that the vine is a symbol of Israel. So, again, we've got to take it to the spiritual level. What is his work and what is happening? Because this is the first time that the spirit of the Lord comes upon him, verse 6, mightily. So it's manifesting himself. It could be, brothers and sisters, that when he kills this lion, he's as confused and marvels as much as any of us. How did that just happen? How did me, a normal man, tear this young lion that is roaring against him? Okay, this is not something that you can walk by on the other side and get round. This lion is come. And what's interesting, brothers and sisters, when we think about the type here, what was it that had come into Israel? Well, it was the lion of the Philistines. We know, don't we, that the lion um, has used um, throughout Scripture uh, to designate both God's will, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember Genesis 49, Judah is a lion's whelp. Well, we read in, we had a brief look at in Genesis 49, Dan is a serpent, a subtle creature that strikes at a rider. But in Deuteronomy 33, and of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. Bashan was actually up the north, okay? A desertous place. So this is leaping forth out of Bashan, back into the promised land. There was only one real famous Danite that we can see, and that's Samson. And Samson has changed this tribe from a subtle serpent in Genesis 49 to a lion's whelp. Can you see, brothers and sisters, young people, the contrast? There is a lion of the nations in the vineyard of Israel, and yet the lion, not of the tribe of Judah, but a lion of the tribe of Dan, has come to judge 
We know Dan means judge, don't we? He's come, and this lion is easily defeated, as it were, tearing a kid. Incredible, miraculous power um, demonstrated by God through Samson. So there we are. Uh, There's a couple of verses there that talk a little bit about God's judgment being upon Israel in the form of a lion. But there is always hope for God's people. And that was going to be the work of Samson. He was going to do to the Philistine lion exactly what the Philistine lion was doing to Israel. He was going to tear it apart and it was going to be no more. And so for Samson, this would have been the most incredible event because he would have realized that God is with me. I know I've been compelled to do this strange thing, but God is with me. And so he goes down and he told not his father and his mother what he had done. So again, another secret uh, that we're presented with. And then we have, don't we, that he went down and talked with a woman and, and she pleased Samson well. And then we come across the lion again. Um, here's lions mentioned um, in scripture. Interesting that there were only three um, people who battled lions in scripture. Daniel, uh, David rather being, being one of them. Um, and Benaiah uh, protected the lions of Moab. We'll skip over that one. And we'll come to what we have coming out of this lion. We know, don't we, that coming out of this lion is honey and a swarm of bees. The incredible thing about bees is, is that they are not self. They're completely selfless, aren't they? They give everything to the collective, to the hive. They don't act as individuals. They act as a collective. And that, brothers and sisters, is a lovely picture of the people who gathered the olive oil. Remember that under the tabernacle and temple worship, that was one thing that everybody got involved with. Everybody got involved with collecting the olive oil so that you could burn the lampstand, the menorah, with a pure flame. It wasn't only open to the Levites, and it's a lesson for us that we're all open for our own salvation, aren't we? Through our own understanding. We can help each other with our understanding of the scriptures, but we've got to read the word of God for ourselves. And this is what's going to happen, that the word of God is going to come out into the land and it's going to be sweeter uh, than the honeycomb. And they're going to, the children of Israel are ultimately going to feast um, on this honey, the word of God, and be saved. So then we have uh, verse 10, this, this woman's, this, this marriage feast. It's rather peculiar, isn't it? It's the word feast there in verse 10, and there's an implication. It's a wine feast. And we all know what wine feasts are about. They're all about getting inebriated. Not really something that you'd have thought a man of God would get involved with. But then he doesn't have any friends, does he? So they, they rent a friend for him. They get these 30 companions and they don't seem to get on particularly well because of the riddle. Um, and again, there's another secret uh, coming together um, in verse 14. Now, and sisters, what, what do we have here? We have here a rather curious event, don't we? We have a marriage between the deliverer, God's deliverer, and a woman of the Philistines. We know that, uh, that she's um, not converted. In verse 16, it says, Thou hast put forward a riddle unto the children of my people. 
There's no Ruth here. Your people shall be my people now. Not at all. She still very much associates herself with her people, the Philistines. So this is not about saving her. It's about something else. And we have, don't we, this idea um, of redemption by Samson through the killing of these men in Escalon, the 30 men in verse 19. It's quite curious, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Why, why would this be the start of deliverance? Well, what's incredible, brothers and sisters, is that even though um, Samson at the beginning of chapter 15 wants to go in to this woman, the spirit works and the marriage is never consummated. So it never, never gets off the ground. And Escalon, in, in verse 19 of chapter 14, that is where the military are based. So Samson, when they plowed his heifer, uh, as he says in verse 18, and they're able to guess the riddle, he then takes it, and we think, brothers and sisters, that these change of garments would have been covered in blood. And seeing as he went to Escalon, they were soldiers. They were soldiers of the Philistines that Samson has killed and has brought their armor. And so there's a very visible statement, brothers and sisters, for us that the salvation of God is working in a very curious way through marriage, seeming marriage to this woman, but it never comes together. And we know, don't we, that, and we'll look at this in our second talk, that they are burnt with fire in chapter 15 and verse 6. So even though the marriage was never consummated, but even if it did exist, she's now dead because her and her house were burnt. And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about this first occurrence of Samson, and we're going to look um, in our second talk at chapter 15 and chapter 16, we're starting to get a picture that God is demonstrating to Samson that he is working in his life, perhaps in ways he doesn't yet fully understand, but the outcome is sure that God's people will see the salvation of the Lord. They will see and they will ultimately understand who is God in Israel. Yahweh will be God. What is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And so, brothers and sisters, we'll, we'll leave it there as we pick up our second talk to answer the question of this act of deliverance, starting in chapter 15 with the 300 foxes. <clears throat>